I'd like to welcome everyone to our latest edition of our Ropes and Gray Tech Studio podcast. Super pleased that I'm here today with not only my partner, but my good friend, Rowan Massey, a wonderful Ropes and Gray partner focused on data, privacy, cybersecurity, and related issues. Rowan, thank you so much for joining us. Ed, it's my pleasure to be here. Thank you very much. We are going to spend some time talking about what you do in tech. But before we get there, maybe just give us two seconds about sort of who you are, where you live, that kind of thing. Sure. Well, as you said, I'm Rowan Massey. I head up the Data Privacy and Cybersecurity Group here at Ropes and Gray. Uh, the accent kind of gives it away. I'm based in the London office uh, and I've been with the firm eight years now. In fact, I think, Ed, you were the first person I met from the firm all those years ago. And I'm still happy I did. Now, do you work just in London or because I, I see you everywhere? How do you view sort of the footprint of your practice? Sure. I mean, the, the, the practice itself is global. So I do a lot of work out of London, but I travel a lot. I'm often in the US. A lot of the clients uh, are US based or multinational. So I'm traveling to see them a lot, as well as moving through Europe uh, and Asia because of the uh, opportunities we have out through our Shanghai and Hong Kong offices. Sounds good. All right. Well, Ron, we, we should turn to the, the meat of the podcast, and that is what you do in tech. Can you give me a quick overview of how you help clients in the world of tech? Sure. Obviously, my practice is, as it says, data privacy and cybersecurity. So pretty much everything I do is I would see as tech related. Now, I work with PE houses on compliance programs. I work with their portfolio companies in every industry from widget manufacturing to biotech, life sciences, pharma, all of those areas. And every time they're asking me a question or to come in and assist them, it will be something data or tech driven. So even those that think that they're not tech companies, maybe it's employee data related issues. I will come in and look at how uh, we can assist them, especially with regard to compliance in those areas. So I'm always involved with our clients on a tech focused basis. Now, when you're working for these clients, can you just to provide an example of what kinds of problems do you solve? The types of problems I solve is quite a broad universe. So it could start with a compliance program. So I will look at the data protection compliance program for uh, an organization, especially multinational organizations, and look at how they can uh, comply with the increasing number of regulatory laws and statutory requirements in different jurisdictions, many of which uh, are now extraterritorial. So for multinationals, that's a real sort of juggling uh, skill. Can you give me an example just to make this concrete, something where, uh, you know, uh, a particular client had a particular problem that you helped them solve? Sure. So let's look at one I've done recently, which was post-transaction. We uh, amalgamated two multinational groups, uh, one of which uh, had US and uh, a lot of Asian operations. Uh, the other was mainly based in Europe. Uh, and so bringing those two together had brought with it a huge employee database. Some was under European data protection laws, some under US data protection laws, some under uh, the different data protection laws of Asia. And post uh, transaction, the group was looking to consolidate its HR and talent management database in the US. So we had to try and work out how we could get the data uh, from um, the U from Europe, from the different Asian countries uh, to the US lawfully. And it was quite a challenge, you know, because of the way that the target had been set up in Europe, they had very strict limitations on what they could do with the data. And I had to find a workaround for that. 
uh, you know, and it, there was a lot of back and forth. There was a lot of challenges, but we did manage to find a system, a practical system based on the contextual risk that was coming out of what the data was being transferred for its purpose, where it was being transferred to the US and why it was being transferred really for the efficiency uh, of the new enlarged group uh, or organization. So we managed to get there, but it took a lot of a lot of explanation, a lot of uh, sort of understanding of different laws because the approach in Europe is very different to the approach in the US. So a lot of the times the US client would get frustrated as to why certain data, be it sort of ethnicity, race or sensitive data couldn't be transferred. And the Europeans would be very sort of frustrated as well that they were being asked to do things that they thought they couldn't do until I found the workaround. Now, I know that compliance infrastructure is a focus, but I and that sounds like it's something where you saw the problem and move forward. But I know you also deal with uh, things that involve some retrospective issues, things where you're kind of looking backward, like breach events. How does that fit in? Uh, you, you know, if there's a ransomware attack, if there's some cybersecurity hack, how do you deal with that? You know, I mean, look, that, that is the sort of second part of the of the practice and it's bread and butter where, you know, cybersecurity become a key issue. Organizations, you know, it's now a case of when they get hit rather than if they get hit. You know, if it's a ransomware attack, it's locked down the systems. It's crisis mode from from the you know the get go. I will get that call usually in the middle of the night or as soon as I've either booked a holiday or I'm on holiday. That's the way it works. And it's uh, the full on crisis response mode. So we will come in. We will look at what the issues are, work with forensic experts, work with marketing and, and communications teams and crisis communications teams and work through all of the issues, trying to understand what the scope of the uh, incident is, what the impact of the incident is, what the remediation steps are, both on a technological basis, so the business can cut start operating, and also from a regulatory side. So what notifications need to be given to regulators in which jurisdictions and what detail needs to be in those? The Ukraine war started, and I actually heard some business people, some clients of mine say, thank God the Russian army is now tied up with somebody else. They won't be hacking us. That there was this period of time when cybersecurity attacks, many of which are state-sponsored, fell away. And people kind of breathed a sigh of relief a little bit. But did that happen? And is that like a permanent state? Where are we in terms of where these hacks are headed? Is, is, it, in, is it common? Is it less common? What's the trend? Yeah, it, well, the halcyon days of it being less common are over. It, that we did certainly see a dip sort of from February last year. And this was reported by regulators. It was reported by uh, all of those uh, in the industry, both legal and technical forensic teams. There was certainly a dip. It looked like the business model of ransomware attacks where people were getting paid uh, for, for to unencrypt data was over. Sanctions had kicked in, so the payments couldn't be made. And possibly there were, you know, a, a reallocation of resources because they were needed to um, assist certain states in their uh, military advantage uh, uh, and offensives. That's over. This year, we've seen a massive spike back uh, in cyber threats and cyber attacks. Critically, the thing we're seeing now is not direct attacks on organizations, but we're seeing the very sophisticated threat actors looking at third party software and looking for vulnerabilities within that and attacking. So really, it's attacking down the supply chain. The most recent one most people would have read about was MoveIt. They found a MoveIt piece of software to file transfer software. They found a vulnerability within that that even the developer didn't know about. They exploited it and got into thousands of organizations that used the MoveIt software. Uh, I've been involved in, 
in response to that in the UK for a number of organizations. And it's been really challenging because it's very difficult for an organization to prevent an attack that nobody knows is a vulnerability. You can't patch a vulnerability because nobody knew about it. Um, but then it's how you respond. And it's being you know, clear and transparent with users, clear and transparent with the regulators, and then taking the step to think, well, how do we fix this going forward? What better diligence can we do in our supply chain? What actions do we need to take in our audits and reviews to ensure that we are fully patched from an IT perspective? So we limit and mitigate risk. I don't think you will ever eradicate risk, but what I'm making sure clients have got is a, you know, the least risk open to them so that they can you know, use as many different resources as they need for their organization to be efficient. I think the hard part about these responses that everyone knows it's bad. Everyone knows you, you've got to hop on it and, and that it's an emergency situation. And yet sometimes you, you hear business people talk about how the treatment is worse than the disease. That, uh, that you know, the people who come in and who help you respond, it, it are, it, it's very, very, very disruptive. And, and how do you manage that? I mean, of course, you, you can't eliminate some of the disruption. It's a hack. People need to deal with it. But are there ways to handle these types of events, which take into account, you know, the effect on the business that's experiencing them? I certainly would take a, a very practical approach here. You've got to look at the risk. You've got to look at the context. Now, interestingly, with something like Move It, there wasn't a ransomware attack. It was a data exfiltration. So business could continue to operate absolutely normally whilst in the background we're trying to do the assessments of, of what the implications would be. If you had a ransomware attack where your entire IT estate has been encrypted and you can't even send an email, so you're suddenly having to move to you know, other forms of communication because you've got no corporate email, the, the, the mindset and the response should be totally different. I think they are. Um, and the way that you manage that has to be different. It has to be practical. And the most important thing that I think I bring to the table yeah, is that it's not my first rodeo. I have so many times talked with CEOs, C-suites and boards who are just almost in sort of analysis paralysis because of the crisis uh, response that they're in because they've never experienced it before. And they're trying to do way too many things at once, thinking they'll be moving forward. when in fact, they're either standing still or moving backwards. And my job is to just basically take all of the heat out of that situation to say, look, this is how we address it. X, Y and Z. This is the time frame. These are the people that we'll work with. If we put these processes in place, we should get to the end far more quickly and we should be able to, to be in a position to justify our response to any regulator far more effectively. And I think that's really important. Spectacular. This has all been super interesting. I, I want to shift gears a little bit to a, a couple of areas that are a little less concrete. The first one is a little bit of crystal ball gazing. If you had to look forward, if you had to say, well, what's around the corner? from a data and cybersecurity perspective, you know, something that's two, three years out, you know, what would that be? What do you see headed down the turnpike towards our clients? For me, two or three years out is probably already here. It's just not been made public yet because that's the way that technology moves. But for, as a, a data privacy lawyer, I think the biggest concern is the confluence of data protection rights uh, along with 
the technological developments we've seen in AI, for example, in facial recognition uh, and large data sets. So the ability to create, whether it's deep fakes or facial recognition linked to behavioral patterns uh, and analysis of those, you know, it may sound very minority report, you know, people showing that the ability to commit crimes before they've actually been committed because of uh, behavioral profiling and prediction. These areas for me, I think, are going to be some of the most challenging. Clients will be developing these technologies and we have to make sure that they are developed in a compliant uh, manner and that they are also uh, ethically developed. I think that's a really important part of where uh, my advice will be over the next three to five years. And at the same time, I think you know we've got a societal responsibility and I'm very certain on this, that we have to be clear that we are protecting the rights and freedoms of individuals as we make these technological developments, because the technological capacity that's out there yeah, is immense and can be used for harm as well as um, a positive influence on society. And we need to make sure that the positives really do remain uh, the, the important focus here. All right. Well, I want to save some time for the portion of these podcasts that is my favorite. We're going to do this like lightning round. First question, easy one. Where do you live? What can you tell us about your personal life? Okay, so I currently live in uh, South London in, in a, a neighbourhood called Dulwich, which is quite a nice leaf, leafy neighbourhood, long way from where I was born and grew up, which was in South Manchester, in the north of England. Uh, but I've been down in London now for nearly 30 years. And uh, now I hear you mention that you grew up in South Manchester. W would that be anywhere near the home of two of the greatest uh, uh, football teams on the planet? It would. It would be very close to both Manchester United and Preston North End. <laughs> I see. I see. Manchester City is a thousand miles away. Who? Oh, I, I, I haven't really heard of them. Sorry. Oh, I see. I see. Next time you come to Boston, Ron, my office is going to be painted powder puff blue. <laughs> there's going to be, you're going to have to use a blue pen on a blue pad. All right. Favorite books. Uh, I think my favorite book would have to be A Hundred Years of Solitude by Gabriel Garcia Marquez. Uh, it starts with the greatest opening sentence of any book and then gets better. It's a perfect, perfect day. And you're going and you're dreaming now at night. It's a perfect sleep. You're in the happiest place doing that thing that you're happiest to do. Where are you and what is it? I think I would be downhill skiing under a blue sky somewhere on a desert island. I see. But it's only a dream, right? So I'm sure I'm allowed to have it. <laughs> well, you know, you, 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 actually, there are uh, these 300-foot uh, sand dunes in eastern Washington here in the States where people sand ski down the dunes. Uh, is, is that Would that be your, your dream? Yeah, I'm looking for a flight now. Rowan Massey, thank you uh, so much uh, for joining us. It's been a pleasure having you. And it's been my pleasure to be here. Thank you very much. And I want to remind our listeners that this is the Ropes and Gray Tech Studio podcast. It is available through the Ropes and Gray website, but also available wherever you find your podcasts. Thank you for listening.